Welcome back to the JPO Podcast. This is Carter Clement from Children's Hospital of New Orleans. Today's episode will be covering the May-June print issue of the journal, and we've got a great range of material today. We'll be spanning from some bread-and-butter conditions like supracondylar humerus fractures and spicocasts to the other end of the spectrum with some real complicated conditions like complex club foot and patients with combined scoliosis and limb deficiency. So let's get started. This is Craig Lauer from the University of North Carolina. Next, we will discuss an article entitled Frontal Crash Injury Metrics Are Below Mandated Limits for a Spica-Casted Child Dummy in Currently Available Restraints. This is from lead author Angela Collins and senior author Patrick Atkinson from the Department of Orthopedic Surgery, the McLaren Michigan State Program, also associated with Kettering University. I'm joined today by two of the authors, Dr. Angela Collins and Jeff Peck. Uh, thank you both for being here. Thank you for having thank us. Thank you for having us. As a bit of background, pediatric orthopedists use spica cast pretty commonly in the treatment of femur fractures and also certain hip conditions. And a survey of parents demonstrates that transportation is one of the biggest obstacles they face when their child is in a spica cast. And there's very little data on safe transport with the currently available restraints. So the purpose of this study was to evaluate the current restraint options in a simulated frontal crash testing using a casted pediatric test dummy. Um, so let me bring Angela in here and just ask um, what led you and Dr. Peck to ask this question and perform this study? Um, yes, yeah, so I was actually an intern and Dr. Peck was my chief resident and we were on call at our trauma center and we had a child with a femur fracture that we put into a spica cast. And Previously, there had been a car seat available for these kids called the Hippo, and that had been discontinued. So we were trying to discharge this kid, and we really didn't have good options for transport. Uh, we had a harness that you strap them in the back seat, but we really had a lot of questions. Was this truly safe? Was this a good way to go? There was no data to support it. And so we decided that because we have this relationship with Kettering University and they have a uh, full crash test lab, that this is something that we have the opportunity to look at and figure out a safe way to get these kids home. I can very much relate to that story. I feel like that's kind of a black box as an orthopedic trainee um, as to what kind of immobilization and, and security these patients are in when they go home. Can you or Dr. Peck maybe get into a little bit of the details about what makes a car seat amenable to fitting a spica cast and what are the challenges that we see there? So the things that you're looking for uh, as far as characteristics of the seats are you want to make sure that there's a good amount of abduction uh, available there in the car seat. Uh, and then also something that you might not necessarily think of is that when you cast these children, uh, they end up having their crotch go forward. So you want to make sure that you have a very forward crotch strap available on these models in order to accommodate this casted position. And so you identified a couple of standard available car seat models that you thought may meet that criteria, and then also a booster seat and also the harness you referenced, and then also the, the Wallenberg, which is kind of marketed as a spica restraint, and you tested all those. Can I ask you, Angela, what, what did you guys find and did any of the results surprise you? Yeah, so we were actually pretty surprised in that we found that the seats that you can buy just off the shelf they did as well as, as, if not better, than seats specifically designed for spica-casted kids, and they were cheaper and easier to obtain. Um, we did find that we thought the booster seat might be a good option because the uh, casted dummy fit pretty well, but uh, there's less restraint with a booster seat, and so the injury values were pretty high. And then when we looked at the uh, vest when the kid was strapped into the back seat, while the numbers were still below the federal guidelines, the head injury criteria, for example, were um, about twice what we were seeing with some of the 
off-the-shelf car seat. That's um, very useful information, I think. What future directions are you taking this work? I imagine there's more things that can be looked at in terms of um, spike casting and safety restraints. Correct. So currently when a car seat is tested, it's only tested in a frontal uh, impact collision. However, it's likely that in the near future, side impact testing will be required. And so we have the ability to do this. And so we have done some side impact testing. This should be published soon. And really showing that one big thing to look for is side wings protecting the child's head. Um, we've also got some work. We were uh, fortunate to receive an OTA grant to look at crash testing using a one-year-old model. So the, these are kids that are going to be sitting rear-facing, which introduces a whole other set of issues with finding a seat that fits. We've completed yeah. that testing. We're in the process of analyzing that data right now. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing about that because certainly we use SpicaCast in those one-year-old patients pretty commonly. Um, Dr. Peck, can I bring you back in here and just ask what would be kind of your final takeaway for our listeners who are wondering how to apply this to their hospital? Yeah, absolutely. So a couple of things that, that I took away from this is that while you may be tempted to uh, use a booster seat because it might fit the hip spike cast a, a little bit better, that you should definitely resist that temptation and look elsewhere for your restraint options. And then second uh, would be that if you are considering uh, the vest harness option, uh, I would be very cautious about pursuing that as a restraint option and instead uh, pursue one of the uh, traditional restraint, car seat restraints, uh, as Angela was referring to earlier. I think this is something that our listeners can use pretty much immediately and it's great information to have. I've, I've already actually forwarded to our trauma car seat coordinator within our hospital. So thank you guys so much for your work and appreciate um, the work of your co-authors. Um, again, this is uh, Dr. Angela Collins and Dr. Jeff Peck. Um, thank you both. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you, Craig, and thanks to Drs. Collins and Peck for joining us. That's some very practical stuff. Next, we're going to Julia for an article and discussion about patients with congenital limb deficiencies and specifically how likely they may be to have concomitant spine abnormalities. This is your co-host, Julia Sanders from Children's Hospital Colorado, and I'm here with Dr. Keith Geddes from Shriners in Greenville, South Carolina, who has joined us to discuss his paper entitled, The Role of MRI in Children with Congenital Limb Deficiencies with Associated Scoliosis. Dr. Geddes, thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. So if we could start off, uh, if you could tell us a little bit about the study population and what prompted you to investigate children with congenital limb deficiencies and scoliosis. Sure. So uh, at our clinic, at our hospital here, we actually have a very large limb deficiency program to begin with, but also whenever uh, trying to decide uh, with kids with limb deficiency, whether their scoliosis needs surgery or not. There's always been a concern about fusing their spine um, in any child, but particularly in a child who might need more mobility in their spine if they're missing their arms or they have an abnormal trendelenburg gait because of weakness due to some of the limb deficiencies they, they have. Um, so we were trying to see, is there something else out there for them? Great. I think that's a population that's a clearly very complex. And what did you discover about the rate of neural axis abnormalities in this population? Well, what we found in our population, about 63% of them had abnormal MRIs with findings, you know, a tether cord or an Arnold Chiari. And then of those, 
25% of them ended up having neurosurgery intervention for these findings. And from that, we found that, that you know, that's way higher than any of the other papers in the literature. You know, for kids with just congenital scoliosis, there's anywhere between 20 and 40% of patients have abnormal MRI findings. Um, but whereas here, we found 60%. That's really impressive because that's clearly a lot higher than anything else that's been published. So going off of that, what are your recommendations for folks taking care of these kids regarding routine MRI screening? So our takeaway from this study is any child with a limb deficiency and starts to show signs of scoliosis, we would recommend getting an MRI for them with the goal of hopefully catching something or finding something that maybe could inter- be intervened on to prevent a fusion down the line. Fantastic. I think that's that's a great result to, to take home and be able to talk to families about and also to be able to coordinate with our neurosurgery colleagues as well. So thank you so much for taking the time to share your findings with us. Absolutely. I appreciate it. This was fun. Thank you, Julia. And thank you, Dr. Geddes. Next, we've got two back-to-back articles on supracondylar humerus fractures. Both have relatively simple but quite useful insights. So we'll start by handing things over to Josh. Well, thank you very much, Carter. I hope that you and your family are safe down there in New Orleans. So next, I'll be discussing the article out of Salt Lake and the University of Utah entitled Inpatient versus Outpatient Treatment of Gartland Type 2 Supracondylar Humeral Fractures, a Cost and Safety Comparison. And we will be joined later in the program by Dr. Christopher Makarowicz, the lead author, to discuss the manuscript. In this study, Dr. Makarowicz and the team in Salt Lake hypothesized that in the treatment of Gartland extension type 2 supracondylar humeral fractures, outpatient surgery can be performed safely and with similar clinical and radiographic outcomes compared with urgent inpatient treatment with an overall reduction in cost. Their study design included a comparison of a prospective cohort of Gartland type 2 supracondylar humerus fractures treated primarily as outpatients, which was the post-protocol group, to a retrospective cohort treated primarily as inpatients, which was the pre-protocol group. Outcomes of the study included inpatient versus outpatient treatment comparison. They looked at perioperative factors, complications, readmissions, reoperations, postoperative radiographic measurements, and direct hospital costs. They had a total of 220 patients in the post-protocol cohort, including 132 patients treated with outpatient surgery, and 129 patients in the pre-protocol cohort, 97 of which were treated as inpatients. Results of the study showed that no differences were observed in operative times, number of pins, conversion to open reduction, readmissions or reoperations between cohorts, and no cases developed postoperative neurovascular injuries or compartment syndrome. Total complications did not differ between the pre-protocol and the post-protocol cohorts. There were significant reductions in total costs per patient between the pre-protocol and post-protocol cohorts, with a marginal effect of $444 comparing the inpatient to outpatient groups. It's a great pleasure to now welcome Dr. Christopher Makarowicz from the University of Utah to the program to discuss his manuscript. Hi, Josh. Thank you for having me. Um, I'm a big fan of the podcast and happy I could be included. Well, it's certainly an honor to have you on the program, and we look forward to hearing your insights on the topic. 
One of the interesting thoughts I had as I read through your manuscript is a related topic that we have published a bit on, and that's regarding the centralization of care in pediatric trauma, including supracondylar humeral fractures. Certainly in America, we have really seen a trend towards treatment of pediatric trauma over the last 20 years or so, towards transfer of care to urban tertiary academic centers, including children's hospitals, which would include your medical center there in Salt Lake. Many researchers, including our team, made the argument that centralizing care can help to increase the value of care delivery. So on that note, you mentioned in the study that seven patients that were scheduled to have outpatient surgery didn't end up having surgery with you guys, and that four of them ended up having surgery elsewhere. And I know in Salt Lake, the chairman of your department has worked a lot with kind of the biggest local insurance provider to secure good reimbursement for your team and that there's not a ton of competitive market for pediatric orthopedics in Salt Lake. But most cities aren't quite like that, and certainly in other cities and bigger cities, there's a lot more competitive factors to consider. When you you think about sending a patient home with the goal and with the hope and the expectation that they'll be able to come back for surgery at a later date, I'm interested to get your insights or any thoughts you might have as to what impact that would have in in an environment with a more restrictive insurance situation or where there's more competitive uh, orthopedic care around. Would you lose a fair bit of volume or do you have any thoughts as to how this might impact the value of care delivered? Yeah, so those are very good points and definitely something to consider when setting up a system like this. I think the primary concern for us when we switched to this protocol was making sure that the kids who were referred out for outpatient surgery would be able to get good, timely care and come back for that care. So as you said, there were seven patients who were referred out who were ultimately not treated at our facility. We keep a prospective list of all of them so we can follow up and see what happened. So three of them were treated non-operatively based on the discretion of the surgeon. One patient did have surgery closer to their home, um, which was three, four hours away. And then three patients were treated at our partner hospital, um, Shriners Hospital, Salt Lake City. So, you know, certainly for this type of system to work, you need to be sure that these patients can return to care for surgery. We are, as you said, the only level one pediatric trauma center in the Intermountain West. And so for us, it's likely that these, it's less likely that these patients will seek treatment somewhere else, though I'm sure it may happen. In bigger cities with more options like Philadelphia, New York, or Boston, the process might not go as smoothly. I do know that in Philadelphia, the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia uses a similar protocol, and for type 2 supracondylar fractures, they're routinely able to evaluate patients in their ED and discharge them with a plan to return for outpatient surgery, either at their main hospital or at an ambulatory surgery center. Um, Dr. Flynn and his group wrote up their experience with this in JPO in 2018, I believe. Um, The Boston Children's Group also has a paper out there about their experience using an ambulatory surgery center to expand their trauma capacity during the busy times of the year. And in that system, patients who are seen in their clinics and EDs can be referred out for outpatient surgery. It seems like the process can certainly work in other locations, but it's important to know your local population. Some of the general lessons we've learned that have helped things move more smoothly are to collect multiple phone numbers from patients' families to be sure we can get back in touch with them, to confirm the plan with the family and be sure they understand and are comfortable with the outpatient surgery option. And I think and we hope that establishing the plan and that relationship early with the parents and the patient prior to leaving the ER, that that may help them stay in that hospital system. Yeah, certainly that early, open, and upfront communication with the family to set the expectation and to answer questions and to identify and address any fears that they might have goes a long way to improving their perceived value of the care that they receive. Did you ever... 
um, have a chance to look at any patient reported outcomes. I know that Salt Lake has uh, been one of the leaders in patient reported outcomes data in orthopedics over the past several years. And you, you mentioned as well that one consideration for admitting patients for surgery during their initial presentation is the distance that they have to travel to get to the hospital in Salt Lake there. As you looked back over the data, are there patients' preferences? Do, do parents have a preference whether they get surgery that night or whether they take their kid home and come back for surgery a day or two later? Yeah, so at the time of the study, we were unfortunately not collecting PROs on these patients, but it's definitely an important consideration when looking at value in healthcare. If we think about the typical equation that's used to illustrate this, which is value is equal to quality divided by cost, quality is made up of both the health outcomes and the patient experience, so both important points. Uh, the University of Utah has definitely been a leader in PROs, and there's been some great work coming out from our orthopedics department led by Dr. Saltzman. The Pete's Ortho Division has been a little slower to pick this up, but several of our subspecialties have started to incorporate it into their workflow, like our Pete's Spine team, and we're rolling it out in our fracture patients as well. In terms of patient satisfaction with the outpatient surgery process, I can give you our anecdotal experience, which is that in general, we found that families are happy with the outpatient option, and they seem to like having a set time for surgery so they can plan their work and school schedules. Um, in the past, for patients who would present in the late afternoon and evening, it was often a struggle to try to explain to uh, the families why they had to be admitted overnight for a surgery in the morning. And for the most part, patients and families don't mind being able to go home and have a scheduled surgery time rather than potentially having to stay overnight and have their case bumped by a more urgent issue. But trying to get some real formal evidence and feedback from these patients is important and something we're working on. Yeah, that communication is key. In my experience, there's nothing that can smooth out an experience for a patient and their family with pediatric trauma more than having consistent and stable communication with them where the resident who sees them initially in the ER to the senior level resident who sees them an hour later, they're providing the same communication. And it's not one minute they think they're having surgery that night to the next minute it's pushed off to the next day. And then the next time they see the residents in the ER, it's that they're going to come back for surgery a day or two later. Having a protocol in place minimizes the risk for misunderstanding. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I think, you know, we try to tell the families that it's safe for you to go home with this fracture, that, um, that this is the way that we typically treat them now is in an outpatient setting and we go through the, the benefits with them. You know, it is important to point out that it's never really been our goal to treat every single one of these fractures in an outpatient setting. So for each case, it's a discussion with the family about the option. So if the family has driven four hours to come to the emergency department or if they get here at 1 a.m., we won't automatically send them away. You know, ideally, we will get to the point where we can identify these patients before they come and avoid the long drive and overnight stay. Yeah, that's a great, great point. And on that topic, do you send these kids home in a splint or do you put them in a cast that's univalved or bivalved? So these kids are typically sent home in a well-padded posterior slab splint with the elbow slightly more extended than 90 degrees. You know, I think across the country there's variation in splinting versus casting. We actually don't acutely cast any of our fractures in the ED, including distal radius, forearm, non-op elbow fractures. And this is different from where I did fellowship, but it's just been our culture and it seems to work well for us. Also, a lot of these patients are being referred from outside EDs and urgent cares and even primary care offices, and they usually feel more comfortable splinting rather than casting. Certainly. And one last question for you before I let you go. So having a OR block time for pediatric orthopedic trauma is certainly a nice commodity that not everyone around the country can have. 
So even for you guys, I, I assume that there are some days that that block time is not used. So I, w I would be interested to hear how that process works as someone around the country might be looking to set up something similar and having some allotted time for pediatric trauma. Um, can you just explain how the timing of scheduling works? Is it a dedicated orthopedics trauma room? Is it something that can be filled by another service if you guys don't fill it by a particular time? Yeah, absolutely. So we should distinguish between our, our daily trauma room and then the block time that these type 2 supracondylar patients are treated in, which we've termed our elbow room, but is really just dedicated time for cold orthopedic trauma. So like you said, we're lucky to have a first start daily trauma room for urgent cases, but this is shared by all services, including general surgery, ENT, and ortho. The, the elbow room or the cold trauma room time is different. Um, it was something we had to negotiate with the OR, and that was kind of one of the fun parts of the project was working with anesthesia and the OR staff to show them that this could be viable. But um, So it started as half a day a week for these type 2 fractures, and as we filled that time up, we actually expanded to be able to have two half days a week, Wednesday and Friday afternoons for cold trauma. So this includes type 2 elbows, but also other fractures that can be treated as outpatients like medial epicondyles, lateral condyles, forearm and ankle fractures. In terms of OR utilization, there are definitely times of the year that are slower than others. So during the spring, summer, and fall, the room is typically full, and the issue is that we don't have enough outpatient space. But in the winter, there are some days when the room is not used to its full capacity. So in those cases, the block time gets released back to the OR by the morning of, I think it's 10.30 a.m., for other services and surgeons to use for their add-on cases. We did not incorporate the room filling rate and the cost of unused OR time in our study, but that's definitely an important consideration when adopting a system like this. That's great. It'll be exciting to see how this continues to evolve moving forward. So Dr. Makarowicz, thank you so much for taking your time this morning to join us on the show. All right. Thank you very much for having me. It was my pleasure. Thank you, Dr. Makarowicz, and thank you, Josh, and especially thank you for the well wishes. Things have certainly been crazy down here in New Orleans, as I'm sure they are across the country in all of the coronavirus epicenters and really everywhere else. And next, we're going back to Craig in Chapel Hill for one more supercondylar humorous article. So this is Craig Lauer from University of North Carolina. Next, we will discuss an article entitled Surgical Trends in the Treatment of Supercondylar Humorous Fractures in Early Career Practice an American Board of Orthopedic Surgery, ABOS Part 2 Database Study. This is from lead author Stephen Rallis and senior author Lissy Fishman from Loyola University. I have both on the line actually with me today, and I want to thank you guys both for being here. Thanks Happy for having me. So the purpose of this study was to compare the fellowship status, the complications, and the geography of essentially who is doing supercondylar humerus fractures based off the Part 2 database uh, from 2002 to 2016. What led you guys to ask this question and do this study? So basically, the question was born out of my experience, both in residency and since I've been in practice. Uh, in my previous job, I took pediatric call at a level one uh, children's hospital, and it was one of only two centers in the state. And I was the recipient of many transfers of supracondylar humerus fractures, and it often seemed that the motivation was to have the patient treated by a pediatric uh, trained specialist, but both in residency and my current job, supracondylar humerus fractures go to the general call pool. So it's not necessarily somebody who's PD trained, it's whoever's uh, up in the call uh, cycle. And so the question is whether or not we're making uh, a difference in the care based on the specialty of the, the operating surgeon. Yeah, I have very similar experience. And when you're getting patients from three hours away and 
they come to see you and it's still a general orthopedist on call, you kind of wonder what's the point. Um, so Stephen, exactly. let me bring you in here. What did you guys find when you looked at all these fractures and who was doing them? Yeah, so we looked at roughly 9,000 cases from the ABOS database, like you said, between 2002 and 2016. We found the majority of the cases, or around 55%, were being treated by surgeons without pediatric subspecialty training. With that being said, uh, pediatric fellowship trained surgeons were the largest single group, accounting for roughly 4,000 cases, or around 45% of the total. And the remaining top fellowships treating these injuries were sports medicine, with around 1,000 cases, no fellowship training with around 900 cases, trauma with 730 cases, and then hand and upper extremity with about 543 cases. When we broke down the surgical procedures into closed versus open, the pediatric trained surgeons performed the majority of the open cases, which was around 190 total cases, but overall this was the lowest percentage of open cases. And then lastly, we looked at the complication rates and found that pediatric fellowship trained surgeons had statistically the lowest overall complication rate with around 7%. And when this was compared to uh, all other specialties combined into a single cohort, uh, the difference in complications while it was significant was about 1.4%, which highlights the fact that really non-pediatric trained surgeons are still very qualified and competent to be treating these patients. So the difference of 1.4% between the complication rate um, you said statistically significant, but by your judgment, you're thinking maybe not clinically that important. Absolutely. Um, did any of the results surprise you? I don't think so. Looking back at it, um, intuitively, I suspected that the cohort with the most cases and fewest complications would be associated with pediatric fellowship trained surgeons. My experience in residency, however, is slightly different as the majority of cases I've assisted with uh, have been well on call and with non-pediatric trained surgeons, which does tend to agree with our data that the majority of cases are being treated by non-pediatric trained orthopedic surgeons. So, um, Dr. Fishman, let me bring you back in here. I mean, we we know the ABOS database is powerful. You've got a lot of years and a lot of cases done here. Um, and you guys do discuss the limitations of some of the data, but do you think that this answered the question that you set out? And then what else do we need to know to maybe kind of put this debate to rest? I think it doesn't fully answer the question. Um, I think what uh, Steve pointed out is certainly true, that it does imply the overall competence of basically everyone in our cohort that we studied uh, treating supracondylar humerus fractures, and that's borne out by the small difference, even though it was statistically significant. But I think in this study, we're only evaluating surgeons in the first few years of their practice because that's who's taking the boards. And it's a database study, so that certainly limits our ability to do a deep dive into any data that we uh, were able to take out of the database. So it's hard to convincingly mm -hmm. answer this question one way or another, um, especially when you take into light the fact that when you take your boards, the amount of complications that you report is probably a bit higher than what we would actually consider a complication. In terms of sort of understanding the answer to this question better, I think it would be great to have outcomes data, which is not part of the ABOS database set. I think probably sure. looking looking at physicians at different stages in their career would be really interesting because I wonder if part of the reason why the uh, outcomes are what, what we were able to see is so similar is because you're so close to your general orthopedic training that you're not that far away from having done supracondylar humerus fractures whereas it might be different if you were 10 years out. 
And then I think it would be important to understand the complications a bit better. And we talked about this a little bit in the discussion, but the main complication that was reported was nerve palsy. And there is no way to specify whether this is a nerve palsy secondary to the trauma or an iatrogenic injury, which I think would be interesting to know. So let me put you on the spot here. Next time an outside orthopedist is calling you to refer someone in for a type 3 supracondylar, are you going to tell them, don't worry, you can handle it? I've got data to prove it. Uh, what I would say is it's a recorded line <laughs> when you're having that <laughs> conversation. So I, I usually talk through with the person on the other end to see what their level of comfort is. But if they truly feel that I'm going to uh, have a better success in treating the child and do the right thing for the child, I will always say yes. But certainly I think it, it gives you a little bit of ammunition to uh, question them on why it's necessary for that, that family to have the extra burden of travel. But if they say they're uncomfortable and feel it's in the patient's best interest, I would be happy to accept that patient. Yeah. And in, in all seriousness, I have our residents ask us all the time because some of them are going to trauma or they're just going to be generalists, but they feel comfortable yeah. with superconvert humerus fractures. And they say, do I have to refer this if I think I have it? And it's almost, you know, I worry that the pendulum has swung too far in that direction where practitioners think that it's not standard of care for them to take care of it, even though deep down they do know what to do. So I think that this can, so would, can help out people, people in that situation. I would absolutely agree with that. I feel like um, in Connecticut, because there were only two places that were really doing a lot of pediatric trauma, it became the trend just to transfer everything when I think majority of the folks that were transferring, it would actually be more than competent, especially with you know, uh, type twos that are being pinned, even those are being transferred in. Oh, wow. Well, any, any final takeaways uh, for our listeners? This study shows that the uh, supercondylars are being treated safely by just about everybody in the first couple of years of practice, regardless of fellowship training. Great. Well, I appreciate it. Um, Steve and Lizzie, thank you for joining me on the call. Again, this is um, Stephen Riles and uh, Lizzie Fishman from Loyola University. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Craig, and thank you, Dr. Rallis and Dr. Fishman. Next, we're going back to Iowa to talk to Josh again. He'll be telling us about some new information on complex club feet. Up next, we will have a quick look at the study entitled Complex Clubfoot Treatment with Ponsetti Method, a Latin American Multicentric Study. The study is a retrospective review of patients at six hospitals treated in countries including Argentina, Mexico, and Brazil with the purpose of the study to analyze midterm results and complications of a large multicenter cohort of patients. I really applaud the author's attempt to add to the known literature on complex clubfoot. There is very little published on the topic, and through my own personal experience, I understand some of the difficulties addressing complex clubfoot. For those of you who may not be aware, complex clubfoot is a term that was first described by Dr. Ponsetti himself in 2006. Patients with complex clubfoot have distinct features that differentiate them from patients with typical clubfoot. It often presents with severe equinus contracture, short first metatarsals, hyperextended great toe, and severe plantar flexion of all the metatarsals, causing a deep fold through the sole of the foot and above the heel. This type of clubfoot is very difficult to treat and oftentimes requires a modification of the standard technique described by Dr. Ponsetti. One of the difficulties with complex clubfoot is the very different presentation that patients can have. It is very much a subjective view of the foot that only someone with a lot of experience and well-versed in typical clubfoot would even recognize. This somewhat subjective evaluation of the foot only adds to the difficulty of setting up a well-run study in assessing outcomes. 
In his original study in 2006, Dr. Ponsetti did not differentiate patients who had previously been treated and had iatrogenic deformities of the foot due to difficult or improper casting techniques with those patients who had truly idiopathic complex clubfoot. The authors in this study did a good job to try to clean the cohort sum and used a more common term to differentiate between these two patient populations. Patients who have previously not had any other treatment are oftentimes now referred to as atypical clubfoot rather than complex clubfoot, whereas patients who have previously undergone treatment with unsuccessful or inappropriate casting with the resulting complex deformities that I just described are referred to as those with complex clubfoot. In this study, the authors excluded all patients with no prior treatment, i.e. atypical clubfoot, and also those with non-idiopathic clubfoot, such as with syndromic or neuromuscular pathologies. The other difficulty when trying to study complex clubfoot is evaluating and describing the treatment that's provided. As Ponsetti described, there is a modification in his original technique for the treatment of the deformity, but this modification is very much a subjective change from the standard protocol. So in light of those difficulties, there has not been a great deal of published data on complex clubfoot. So again, I really applaud these authors trying to put together a multicentric study to evaluate their outcomes. So the authors of this study looked at patients with complex clubfoot treated at six different tertiary care institutions with a minimum of one year follow-up. Results of their study showed of the 79 patients that were included in this study, accounting for 124 feet, the median age at initial treatment was seven months. Patients required a median of five casts for deformity correction. Percutaneous tenotomy of the Achilles tendon was performed in 96% of feet. 122 feet, totaling 98% of all feet, were initially corrected. Two feet, however, were not able to be corrected and required a posterior medial release. Clinical data suggested that the Pirani scored improved significantly from a pre-treatment mean of six points to a post-treatment mean of 0.5 points at the latest follow-up. 6% of patients presented minor complications related to casting. Relapses occurred in 29.8% of patients. In this subgroup of patients, the number of casts required at initial treatment was higher and the follow-up was significantly longer than patients who did not have a relapse. So in conclusion, the results of the study are very promising. They found that the Ponsetti method is safe and effective for correction of complex clubfoot. Again, highlighting that this is a modification of the standard Ponsetti method for clubfoot correction. The authors felt that early diagnosis and strict adherence to Ponsetti principles are key to achieve deformity correction. I was very impressed that in each of these centers included in this study, that the physicians themselves were pediatric orthopedics trained and had additional training in Ponsetti method and performed the manipulation and castings themselves. Patients with complex clubfoot require frequent follow-up because of a higher recurrence rate than patients with typical clubfoot. So despite the slightly higher recurrence rate, it is promising to see that complex clubfoot can be effectively treated with appropriate Ponsetti method casting and manipulation. And the authors of the manuscript stress the importance of obtaining appropriate training in the Ponsetti method as a way to minimize the difficulties and complications that can occur. Well, thank you, Josh. Lastly, we're going back to Julia to wrap things up with an article on trauma in the developing world. This is your co-host, Julia Sanders, and I'm going to review for you today a paper by Dr. Patrick Curran and colleagues out of UC San Francisco entitled Practice Patterns for Management of Pediatric Femur Fractures in Low- and Middle-Income Countries. 
Lower income countries have a disproportionate incidence of femoral shaft fractures compared to higher income countries, and the authors sought to determine if treatment patterns by age differed between the two. Online surveys in multiple languages were sent to surgeons across a variety of low, low middle, and upper middle income countries regarding their preferred methods of treatment, years in practice, level of training, and volume of pediatric trauma. Results were analyzed from 413 surgeons in 83 countries. The majority practiced in urban settings and were fellowship trained in either pediatrics, 26%, or trauma, 43%. 61% of survey respondents stated that they would treat femur fractures in infants with spica casting, as opposed to pavlic harness, 19%, or traction with delayed casting, 14%. Upper middle income countries reported more use of pavlic harness, with lower income countries reporting significantly more use of traction. For toddlers and children, Surgeons in lower-income countries reported more use of non-operative methods, particularly traction with or without delayed casting. For those that preferred operative intervention, lower-income countries were more likely to use ORIF, and higher-income countries were more likely to use intramedullary implants. Reasons cited included availability of implants. Results in the adolescent age group again showed a significant trend for decreased operative fixation in lower-income countries although there was no difference in operative treatment choice by country income level, with more surgeons in general choosing intramedullary fixation than ORIF. The authors note that while AAOS clinical practice guidelines provide an algorithm for treatment that is easily followed in higher income countries, lower income countries are limited by resource availability, access to care, and cultural differences. Traction remains a mainstay of treatment in lower resource settings, especially in younger children, and future efforts should investigate alternative treatment options in these settings. Well, thank you, Julia. Thank you to all of our listeners. That is it for this month. If you have not checked out the other POSNA podcast, it's called Interview with a PD Pod. And about every month, Nick Fletcher from Atlanta sits down with another one of the leaders in our field to pick their brains. It's available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen. Thank you again and stay safe out there.